When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A one, two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Welcome to Insights, everyone, where today we're excited to welcome Jerry Beckley, renowned co-founder of iconic rock band America, the group responsible for such classics as Sister Golden Hair, Ventura Highway, and their most famous, A Horse With No Name. America recently celebrated 50 years of music making and touring the world, and we wanted to catch up with Jerry to hear what's on his mind as he reflects on the success they've had over the decades. Plus, he shares details relating to his new solo music and upcoming album, Aurora, an 11-song album set for release on June 17, 2022, via Blue Elon Records. Beckley's a charismatic and optimistic artist, and we can't wait to share our chat with him. So let's get to it. Here's Jerry Beckley with Amy Wright, right here on Insights. Listen, it is an absolute thrill. We're so excited to have you uh, talking about Aurora. And But, you know, I'm going to go back a little ways because um, it's just too much fun to find out how you kind of got started in this whole business. I was actually kind of shocked at how young you were when you made your, your first hit, really. I mean, it was you were young. 17, I think, when we signed. Um, I, you know, I started piano when I was three, so I was playing my whole life. But professionally, I suppose it's not until, I don't know, what's the turning point? Because we were playing in high school bands, you know, all through high school and got paid. Is that professional? I don't know. That is that. professional. So, so what drew you to music in the first place? You were little bitty. I mean, why did you yeah. start that young? I think, pretty sure, first of all, we were, we'd moved from Texas. I was born in Texas, moved to England when I was one year old. I have no memory of Texas at all. So first memories are England. And the house that we were renting had a piano in it. Started as a kid just fiddling around. And my mom, who was a fanatic music listener, appreciator, she was, she just had wonderful taste in music, including all the Russian composers. I was, uh, Rachmaninoff and Prokofiev, all the good, all the romantics. That's what I was listening to as a kid. So when I, I started lessons, when I was four, and uh, that's kind of how it got going. And when did you pick up guitar? Ten. Ten. Around <laughs> the folk Kingston Trio and stuff. You know, that was the t- right before, maybe 62, right before Beach Boys and Beatles, you know. When you really went to high school in England, right? You were in London? Yeah. Well, the last two years I was in London. In ninth grade, I was in uh, Virginia, outside of D.C. Tenth, I was in Germany for a year. And uh, then 11th and 12th was London, London Central. And that's where you met Dewey and Dan, right, at high school. Now, were they American as well, or were they British? Yeah, coincidentally, both Dewey and I had English mothers, so we were kind of half and half. And Dewey, in particular, was born in England. Only because his, his parents were stationed there at the time. Um, but half English, I guess. You know. Where in Germany were you? Uh, Ramstein, 
Air Force Base. My dad Ramstein. was the big Ramstein, which is still an active base. And I went to something called K-Town High School, which is Kaiserslager. I actually you know. was born in Augsburg in, in uh, Bavaria because my dad was in the Red Cross. So Oh, there you go. We were so there until I was about three. Did you travel around like a service kid too? In the, in the just, just until I was uh, only like three or four years old and my parents who were from Memphis decided to go back to Memphis because they in the Red Cross it was a little different. We were in the relief missions and so we were transferred everywhere there was some kind of disaster. <laughs> so it could be six months, five months, four months. And I think my dad finally decided yeah. that it was a little bit too much moving around. But, um, but we were associated with a base, a military base there in Germany. And, um, a lot of bases so, in Germany, or there were, there were back in, back in my day. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So, so you're in London, you meet Dewey and Dan, and you start playing. And I, uh, when, when, when were you in the Vanguards, which was more of a surfer type. Well, that much yeah that was in virginia that was probably um seventh and eighth grade i don't know what year that would make it you know so you're yeah, already was, or, already starting bands yeah in fact i was thinking the other day that i didn't really sing both dewey and i our, our earliest band things where he was playing dick dale tunes was that instrumental surf stuff we didn't really have singers and i guess when the whole British invasion and Ed Sullivan every week, you'd see another band. Clearly singing was the thing. But I remember when I was in Germany, I played lead guitar in a band and they had two brothers who were the singers. I don't think I sang at all. And then I came to London and I joined a soul band in the 11th grade and they had a front man, a singer. So the whole singing thing was later. It must have happened later, you know. But did you already know that you could sing and you just weren't singing? Yeah. Yeah, I, I was actually headhunted when I was a kid to sing in the Washington Episcopal Choir. They came around and, you know, did tests on, okay, we need these, you know, falsetto, these high-voiced kids. And me and a couple kids from my school, that was a job. He got paid and everything. And then my dad yanked me out because he'd been raising us Roman Catholic, and he wasn't happy about singing in the Episcopal. <laughs> well, and your dad was in the military, obviously. We just talked about that. So you don't really associate military parents with being particularly supportive of artistic type careers, uh, but was he? Yeah, he was. And he was also a lover of music. He was very liberal for being a high-ranking Air Force officer. But in addition, they were a lovely couple, my mom and dad, and, and shared in millions of things, which they were both painters. It included lots of going to galleries and oh. going to see symphony concerts and stuff. So it was, I would consider, a pretty, pretty enlightened, considering the, the setting, you know. So he was maybe an artist at heart. He, he would always, he used to have a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder, and he would, he would set up a mic, and he would play some of his favorite crooners, you know, the kind of Sinatra kind of era, and he would lean in, and he'd like to sing along to the, because he'd want to record himself. So I know he kind of fancied himself as a singer. So in London, what were you listening to when you were in school there, in high school? Well, it was an amazing time. I'd already been totally hooked by the British invasion. I mean, as everybody was, if you were alive in the 60s, it was impossible to avoid. But for me, and I've heard, I remember Tom Petty mentioning it quite a bit in interviews. Most people I know of my age, it's hard to understate the immense impact that all of that had. It was a, it was a defining moment for all of us when we saw it. 
that's what I want to do. So um, it was an early kind of, what was the question? I'm sorry, what, what was the... So what were you listening to being in oh, London? Yeah. Well, the interesting, by the time we got to London, 67, 68, 69, that whole wave of British stuff, those bands were still kind of together. The Hollies, I don't think the Yard, I think the Yardbirds had maybe broken up. But, and of course, the Beatles were still together. But there was a whole nother round of stuff coming. You know, the whole the Cream and Zeppelin and all that was just around the corner. So it never really led up in England. It wasn't like 60s invasion, British invasion, and then quiet until Zeppelin. Or I mean, it was, it was always very, very... Plus, living in London, all of those acts were playing everywhere. We went to see King Crimson play every night of the week at the Marquee Club, you know, and they hadn't even done their first album. So very creative time to be in London. I was kind of wondering about that because England is so much smaller than the U.S. and you think about all the music that came out of there, but a lot of it was in London. I mean, even if you came from someplace else, you ended up in London and you were there and were you able to collaborate or, you know, kind of meet some of these guys when you were young? In a sense, it's kind of a small town. And if you know your British music, you know that the Hollies were from Manchester, Beatles were Liverpool. They weren't all from London. Very few were from London. I think the Stones were, might be kind of from the suburbs of London. But in the same way that if you if you parse uh, the California sound, all of those groups, the West Coast sound, whatever your moniker is for that, none of, nobody, nobody's from California. Neil Young and Joni were Canadian, and Don Henley was Texas, and... And we were from England. You know, it was a it was a, a melting pot kind of thing. Same in London. We did well. We went to a million shows. I don't want to say we had access to all the great, um, you know, names that were coming through. But I did start doing sessions when I was fifteen and sixteen. I was playing on de- not things you would know, but people's demos and stuff. So I did start to make some contacts and you know get to know, get, dig a little deeper into the business. So when you and Dewey and Dan got together, um, was America the first name of your band or was it called something else? We were called the Days with a Z in high school. And that was a cover band, but we were never all three in at the same time. I think Dew was in for a while and he left and then Dan was in the band. So we knew each other and we'd all played and, you know, every week the band members would change or something. But it was cover, cover music, whatever was top 20 at the time. So when did you formally become America? In 1969, we graduated high school. Dewey and I stayed in London. Dan went back to Virginia to do a, he did one or two semesters at Old Dominion. And Dewey and I just got a job on the base and we had stayed in touch. And now we were working kind of together in warehouses next door. And he said, yeah, I've been writing a few of my own songs. Me too got together and we played a few things, you know, I need you and three roses and stuff. And within a few months, Dan, his college career came crashing to a halt and he came back and he said the same thing, me too. So it was pretty, it was really about the start of 1970 that we were actually sitting together in a room and Dan had a beautiful high voice. So he always had the high, high part of the harmonies and stuff. So it didn't take long. It was, it was pretty quick. So, when did you sign with Warner? 71, I think we signed. We might have signed late 70, but the album was done in 71. It didn't come out in the States till 72, but it came out. In, and as, I don't know if you know the story, but it didn't have horse on it. We, we recorded the album without horse. The horse hadn't been written. And 
we we were kind of thinking, oh, I Need You is probably the single. That sounds like a kind of a ballad hit. And for some reason, I think because Warners knew that we were living together and writing every day. And after a few months, a month or two, they said, have you got anything else? Now, a label would never normally say that. You deliver the album and they get their budget for promo and that's it. They're done. Stand, stand or fall. In this case, we went back in and cut horse and two or three other things. And they, they made the decision. They said, oh, it's got to be that horse song. That's great. So put it out as a single, went to number one in England, but it wasn't on the album. It was a separate project. So in the States, now we had a big hit album, big hit single. And in the States, when they saw that, they don't always release everything that's signed by Warners in UK or Germany. It's, it's all very small in comparison. And they said, well, if those guys will come over, we'll, we'll release that. Sure, we'll come over. So we sent them what's called the parts, the album and the single, and they pressed up a hundred thousand before they realized that the single wasn't on the album. And so they're the, the collectors' versions of that album are the ones that don't have the big hit on it. So you had to re-release it with the the big hit on it. Yeah, yeah, we kind of they repressed it and added it to the notes and stuff. I'm gonna have to find one of those copies now. <laughs> I I have one. I I'm terrible at you know people trying. Dewey saves everything. Just everything, every poster, every night, you know, he's taken a few copies. I don't, I don't keep, for a guy who doesn't keep any of that stuff, I've got a lot of crap in my house. I was just trying to type. <laughs> what is all this? Because it's certainly not memorabilia. I don't know. I know. My, my husband's more the documentarian. He keeps all the posters and ticket stubs and, and does all that. And I'm terrible. Yeah, me too. My wife was saying, you know, because we have a lovely home in Sydney and, I have in boxes in storage tons of gold records and platinum records and stuff, and I just have no interest in. And she's, oh come on, we got to get them out. And I said, oh, yeah, I guess we could break them out and frame them, put them on the wall. They are framed. It's just that I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't need to. No, nothing negative. I just don't need to be reminded I was there. I know. <laughs> you already know you were there. Yeah, I, I don't need any reaffirmation. I'm content. So, so when you first came over and you were touring in the U.S. Um, I, I read that there was, and you can kind of verify this, that it was America from England, yeah, from and England. that was confusing. <laughs> yeah, live from London, America. And it was true, but technically true, but, but kind of confusing. All of that stuff, I think, you know how they say when stars align? And in our case, there's not a thing you would change because the way it happened was so lightning in a bottle, it just blew up instantly biggest record of the year and and uh you know that that i suppose who are these guys there was even because dewey sounded like neil young there was this whole neil young thing and some people thought oh it's it's really neil you know he's done this side project under a different name neil's dad if you read neil's book even his dad says i like your new horse song or something so um it all i don't know all came together at the right time how did that affect you personally because that's a lot to take on when you go from almost obscurity to really very a lot of fame? It's, it is most, at least in my case, I'm sure different for everybody. Christopher Cross is a dear friend. There's a guy at first album, I think he had five Grammys and an Oscar. So the, I don't mean to pretend that isn't a lot of pressure and stuff. In our case, I think we did pretty good. Um, we had a very good team of managers and business managers that were well-established and they made the right decisions in those areas that we could have really blown it, I suppose. You know, when you go out and buy yourself a yacht or something or 
Um, so it went very well. Having said that, um, when you put out a record when you're a kid and you're young and you're naive, you think, oh, it might get on the radio, it might get, which it did. So in a sense, we were kind of thinking, oh, it's what's supposed to happen, isn't it? And as everybody else around us that was like in shock, you know, because they knew how rare this was. No, it's, it's, it's very rare when you really start sort of analyzing it. Um, you were obviously super talented and happened to meet the right people that got your music distributed because sure. so many great artists out there, they just, they stay in obscurity because they don't re meet the right people or the yeah. m music or, doesn't get or out the there. They meet are not only not right there, they're completely the wrong, they rip them off mm -hmm. or something. I, I kind of got into Big Star for a while, which is Alex Chilton. You know? Oh, yeah. There's a case of, you know. Good just, Memphis boy. <laughs> the next, yeah, exactly. The next big thing, you know, it's never really quite blue. Anyway, yeah, it's not easy, but it did, but it happened. So, when did you connect with George Martin? I know that he produced um, a number of your albums in the in the seventies. Yeah, we George started on the fourth album. We had co-produced the first one with a very talented staff guy at Warner Brothers. We knew what we were doing, and I had done a lot of sessions, and so. After the first one was a platinum album, we came to L.A. We just said, we'll do this. We got it. We got this. So we did the second album ourselves, and it had Venture Highway and Don't Cross the River. It had hits. Um, the third one didn't. third one was called Hat Trick and didn't do so well. And it was kind of falling on me a little bit more. I was kind of, you know, the guy at the board and stuff. And I really felt a lot because we were touring. Now we're doing a lot of shows. And I think Dan and I, maybe all three, said, might be time to bring in a bring in a pro you know just to take care of that part we're going to still write all the music and stuff if we can get somebody we trust and george was at the top of the list top of everybody's list you know of course and it was just kind of one of those well you can only ask what is he, he can pass and he didn't pass he said oh this sounds lovely so he ended up doing we did seven seven straight albums with george and what was it like working with him it was fantastic he was uh he was a lovely, incredibly talented man. And I always said for the people who kind of know these characters, he was a cross between Prince Philip and Spike Milligan because he was really an incredibly funny, quirky dude. But he was always in the suit and tie and, you know, hello, lads and stuff. But, you know, all those Beatles stories are really well known. I think they, they were attracted to him because they knew he was the comedy producer at Parlophone or something. You know, he'd done the goons and stuff. So we had a fantastic time. The first album, he said, I'd like for you to come to England because I really can't be gone too long. I've built a lovely studio, Air Studios. Uh, and we got, and we said, of course, you know, do and I, half English and stuff, we'd love to come. And when we got there, he says, I've booked two months. Uh, I'm not saying we need to be done, but let's just see how we go. And we did the album in 13 days. We were done in wow. two weeks. So, and he said to us, I remember he said, that can't possibly be a success. Nothing that easy could be a success. <laughs> and and, uh, and in it said in jest, not, but but it had Tin Man and Lonely People mega mega hits. And we were back, and he was back even more so because he had now established himself back on the charts. And the next album, the Hearts album, had Sister Golden there, so he had a number one record with somebody other than the Beatles and stuff. So it was a great time for all of us. Pretty exciting. It, so in the 70s, it seems like uh, bands were very prolific, um, even in the 80s too. And now bands take a lot more time between albums. 
And was there pressure from labels back then to put out an album every year or close to it? It, it depends on when you're in this business, what that timing is. If you 63, 64, the Beatles put out three or four records in a year, you know, and that was not that unusual. Of course, you needed to be in demand. When we came on board, it was about one a year. It had, it had slowed. They, they started to become much more statements, you know, mm-hmm. a future past by then, you know, Moody Blues. and th- These were not the kind of thing you could bash out two weeks or three weeks. So it was a once a year. So in our case, was that too much pressure? It's just all we knew. I suppose if we'd have done it 10 years earlier, they might have wanted two or three a year and we would have had to deal with that. Now it's obviously even longer, I guess, although no, there's no way to, when they say they drop something new nowadays, it just means something completely different, you know, from um, when we were uh, releasing albums yearly. I would say that America has a very signature sound and um, beautiful, I mean, beautiful melodies, the harmonies. And when you kind of, came together, did you think that that was going to be the case? Was it intentional or did it just work out that way because all of you sang and your voices just blended? Well, all of the above. We we were really focused on vocal harmony. CSN been huge. You know, the singer-songwriter thing, a guy with an acoustic guitar, there was James Taylor, Cat Stevens, Joni. That was also a thing. But, but three guys sitting together, I mean, that was Kingston Trio was three guys. So it wasn't like a revolution but in our case it was clearly our direction the only thing that really evolved quite quickly the first album which is a lovely record it's basically just the three of us strumming and singing with a little bit of bass overdub and some very little bit of drums but by the second album we had Al Blaine and Joe Osborne from the Wrecking Crew so it did evolve into I think we're going to want you know we'd grown up listening to the the Beatles and Eleanor Rigby and string sections and stuff. It wasn't like, why on earth would we do that? I mean, that was kind of the target, you know. I saw that Wrecking Crew documentary. That was pretty, that's great. Pretty fascinating. And what was it like working with such a talented backing group? I mean, they just basically nailed it every time that they went in the studio. Well, it looked like <laughs> they they did. We we just had two of them. We had Hal Blaine on drums and Joe Osborne on bass, and. They, you know, I think Hal had played on something like five straight Grammy Song of the Years or something. You know, Carpenters, Fifth Dimension. It wasn't just like he was the drummer for such and such a band. Played on everything. And if you listen to Venture Highway and the hits from that album, they were really uh, integral to the arrangements and stuff. They, they just kind of scribbled quick charts and stuff. It wasn't like I need to know every note you want me to play, you know. That's why they were so in demand. You could just kind of turn the song over to them, and, you know. But that that that, that documentary is fantastic because it tells the story behind the story behind those people, and you know. And I think they were so busy doing so many sessions. Joe Osborne used to tell me that Carol Kay will tell you that she played on Ventura Highway, <laughs> which she didn't. Carol never played on any of our stuff, but and Joe did play on. But I think. They, you got to cut them a little slack because half of them can't remember. They do three or four sessions a day, you know, four or five days a week. I can imagine not remembering what I, I forgot that I sang on Sail on Sailor years ago. Somebody was asking me about what was it like to sing on Holland and the Beach Boy album. And I remember singing on the album, but I didn't think I sang on that song. And then they brought out the track sheet. And there it was, you know, on backgrounds. 
So what, what was the scene like in California? So you're not in England anymore, you're in California. And so what, what was that sort of scene like? Was it collaborative where, you know, th there was the whole Laurel Canyon movement and... Yeah, it was a wonderful time, like one of those great eras, like Paris in the 30s and Laurel Canyon. We, we, we moved from our little cottage in England into David Geffen's house. We were living at Geffen's with Joni Mitchell for a few months. And that office was called Lookout Management. It had Joan and Jackson Brown and Crosby, Stills, Nash, Neil Young. It was an unbelievably creative batch of people. You know, we were just these young upstarts. But part of the thing that they did, but you know, back in the old Colonel Tom Parker days, you would do whatever they said and you could be speaking to, you know, press every day. When you worked with this office, nobody, you can't get to Neil Young. You know, he's... It's untouchable. What do you, you want an interview with Neil? Forget it. Who do you think you are? So that kind of helped us. That was that was protection, I think, that because we were, you know, album and single were number one records and stuff. I think it could have been a lot worse had we not had that that wall around us. So what was it like living with Joni Mitchell for a couple of months? <laughs> she was right. I like. I wish to. I wish I could say she was writing Blue, but Blue was already out. I think. Uh, I'm, I'm not up. I should know my Joan chronology, but she was writing the whole time because incredibly, she's not painting, she's writing. And there was a housekeeper there named Jerry at the house. And Jerry used to go up to Geffen and say, if that girl doesn't quit playing the piano all night, I'm quitting. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good. Joan. It's like, well, that's what she does. Uh, she, she, she writes songs. Uh, she's so prolific. Thinking, yeah. Anyway. So it, it's, at some point, you guys kind of took a break from making albums and you were touring mostly. Was that sort of 80s and, and early 90s yeah. or? Well, in the 80s, the Warner's years were over. We got signed to Capitol and all their best intentions. But you, by that time, every career has an arc. And we clearly had a huge, lovely arc, gone almost 10 years. So I don't really fault them for doing anything wrong. And we had a huge hit on our second Capitol album with You Can Do Magic. And we were comeback act of the year and stuff. And all of that was really great. But we were 10 years older now and we were starting, you know, my joke is that when you're younger, you're writing about all of these things that you've experienced your whole life. And if you are fortunate enough to have some success, now, you're, now your concerns are whether to get the oyster leather or the Palomino leather in your Mercedes. You know, it's like you're maturing, I guess, but, but it is a distraction. And we held on. We did very well. But uh, record sales just basically tapered to nothing. And so we built quite a large touring, you know, fan base. And so we just stayed on the road, went around the world. Did you have kids yet? 79 was my first son. I now have five. I have them from 18 to 43. Any of them are musicians? Matthew, my oldest, toured for years is uh, with Katy Perry. He toured, he's on all of the early Katy Perry stuff. Um, and he is a successful producer. He was up for a Grammy a couple years ago. He did... Uh, Camilla's um, Havana. Um, he's done very well. So when did you start uh, focusing on solo albums? When did that start? When we were no longer doing a record a year or over two years or three, I was still writing. You don't, I didn't write just, oh shoot, there's a project. I better, better get busy. You know, I was always writing. So every year there'd be another five or 10 tunes that I thought were pretty good. Um, and, um, so eventually, 
the solo albums were never like a, not an unheard of thing. Every groups of people doing. I like it. And when when the technology advanced, where you could get like ADATs and put these records in your house, they were no longer demos on your cassette machine. Now you could make really very good quality digital recordings. I think that was the kicker. And so I started maybe mid nineties, late nineties. Did you have a home studio? Yeah, I always had a home studio. In fact. I did an interview last year with one of those recording, one of the great recording mags, because I was one of the artists that even to this day, I've had a home studio for 50 years and it's evolved over the years. Now the whole thing's in a shoebox almost, you know, it's a tiny, tiny little thing. So tell me about the project Here and Now. That was in 2007. And right. that was a collaboration with a number of artists that were sort of on the, I guess, indie rock side. Yeah. And I had uh, developed a relationship with Adam Schlesinger. Rest in peace. For those who don't know, Adam was one of the first casualties of the COVID pandemic. Um, but he and I became friends and fans. Dewey and, both Dewey and I were huge Fountains of Wayne fans. And some of the uh, my favorite records of all time. Got to know Adam. Adam and I started swapping tapes and writing together. And he then said, you ought to come to New York and we'll cut some of this stuff. And Sure. And he worked in production with James Eha, who was known for the Smashing Pumpkins. Two of them had a studio and I went first of all. And then the A&R people that kind of it's their job to keep their finger on the pulse, what's going on and stuff. They are following Adam because he's one of those guys. He's writing for Broadway. He's writing scores from, you know, that thing you do. He wrote for Tom Hanks. Um and when they heard that Adam was now going to work with that group America, remember them? From this, oh, shoot, that might be cool. So we started getting offers. And now we took it to Dewey. At first, it was just me and Adam messing around. But when it became real, we went to Dewey and said, this looks like it's a, a real label and a real deal. And he said, sure, I'm in. So that's how it got going. And it was fantastic. Once he had such, both of them had such, we were so highly respected in their business that the minute they said, we're doing this America. People came out of the woodwork. You got Ryan Adams and and Jim James and Ben Queller and all kinds of fantastic talents that I'm I'm pretty sure had we cold called them, they, they probably wouldn't have come, but if they because they knew it was Adam. So then the challenge became that it wasn't conceived as like a duets thing. You know, how do you use these lovely talented people but keep them integral, you know, not buried, but not like sure. this Adam's track. This is the My Morning Jacket track. And they did a great job. I love that album. I had to start to finish. I had the greatest time. Were you guys able to tour for that album afterwards? We toured the songs. We learned quite a few of the songs. I mean, we were in the charts with that album. We only did one or two songs, show, shows with Fountains. They're, they were a fantastic band and stuff. But, you know, like all bands, it's not easy to keep the whole thing, keep all the plates spinning. So Adam, I think, just ended up more doing his own production stuff. Well, it's been great that you guys have continued to make music and tour, and you're, you've been doing your solo stuff all along the way as a creative person. It's great to have those, those continuous musical outlets. And um, let's actually talk about your latest album, Aurora. Okay. And it's out on Blue Alon Records. And... You recorded it at home in, in Venice, California, or parts of it in well, Australia? I did, or? I did both. I, when when we were all in lockdown, I've, I've always had a couple dozen songs that I'm working on, and, 
And some of them aren't finished just because I haven't written the bridge or there are a lot of them are a work in progress. And I tend to write something and get it kind of 80 percent there and say, okay, that's good enough. I hear where it's going and I'll save the last few bits for when it's needed, you know, so that it's not just done. And so 14 months in Australia and a lovely home and and, you know, actually as tragic as the world circumstances were, it was a much needed break for us. We never would have had that much time off. So I thought I'd better build a studio. I'm going to need, you know, I'm going to need to create. So built a nice studio in Sydney and this stuff started to take shape. So there's 11 tracks on this album. And I think I cut 45 things in that year and a half uh, between Sydney. And then I never had a studio here in this little place in Venice where we are. And because this wasn't quite done, I thought, well, no, got to build a studio here because I got to finish it. So it was between the two. Right Were all there. the songs written during COVID? No, um, some were. Some are new. Some are brand new. Some are thirty years old, forty years old. I just hadn't got around to finishing them or something. So the interesting. I grew up in the era of albums where you put on here's track one and it segues into two and stuff. So I tried to arrange this album like that. There's kind of a side one, side two. It's about forty minutes, and then it was a matter of picking which ones go best together. It was no. You know, no, I wasn't being disrespectful to the other 30 tunes or so, but I didn't want to do a double album. Let me just pick, I think, of the 10 or 12 best. You know, I've talked to a lot of artists, and um, there are a lot that say that having that break during COVID, while no one wants to be forced into a break like that, and (laughs) it was hard on a lot of artists as well, um, that there was um, time to not tour and, and be creative and and just focus on your craft, which a lot of touring musicians don't really have that opportunity. Well, and, you know, I'm sure that story is different to a man. I know a lot of musicians who have been fortunate enough to spend their life traveling and performing that taking a month or two off, they just didn't know what to do with themselves because that's that is their release. Now, I've done it now for 52 years. And so my feeling is, you know, I feel more like that part is kind of wrapping up. We're trying to taper it down a little bit. I just, both Dewey and I are 70 this year. It's like, at what point? Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> and, uh, but I know a lot of people, they're just sitting there drumming their, because that's what they do. They can't wait to get back out on the road. And oh my God, it's all I know. I'm a busy guy. I'm a photographer and I, my wife and I travel and stuff. There's a lot of other things other than just playing concerts every night. Well, I'm going to ask you a couple questions about your photography, but before I do, so Dewey, Dewey was on this album, and he really wasn't on most of your solo albums. Is this the no. first time he's appeared on a solo album of yours? It is, and not by any kind of design one way or the other, um, but we have always worked together, and those tracks usually make it into an America album. Lost and Found was made up of a lot of stuff that I had cut at my house that Dewey was involved with. In this particular case, it was a song that needed a second verse. And Larson, who was co-producing this with me years ago, said, well, let me run it up to Dewey. Maybe he could. So he he wrote a lovely verse and sang it. And so of all the tracks that I had, well, that's kind of good. And there was nothing for America on the on the table at the moment. There was no deal or anything. And I thought, OK, that might be a nice thing. You know, it's just one track. It's not like, well, geez, this is really an America album. And he did co-write it and we're co-credited and stuff. But I'm really 
I, I love it. It's a beautiful song, and he did a great job. So it adds another little dimension to this project, you know, first time that he's been on one of my solo things. We joke about, because he doesn't really have any desire to do a, you know, he's got a full life, too, and the, with all the shows we do, that's enough for him. So we joke about the elusive Dewey Bunnell solo album that we're, we're all quietly working on that he doesn't know it. <laughs> He doesn't know about. We're gonna spring it on him, you know. So I, I actually heard the first single, "The uh, Friends Are Hard to Find." Yeah. And uh, tell me about that song. Well, in the there's a little um, bio that's written, and the guy kind of got it a little wrong because he mentions Jimmy Webb, and and in this song, the opening lines are, "You play me your song, and I'll play you mine. Mine's okay, but yours sure sounds fine." Um. And what I'm talking about is that Jimmy's a dear friend and Jimmy is one of our, you know, living treasures as a composer and, and one of my favorite songwriters. And he doesn't co-write. I have, I'm one of the few people who's co-written with Jimmy, but um, we used to always sit down and he, I'd play him a song and then he'd play me his new song. His was always his, this monumentally better, you know, mine was like, I'm going to deep, deep, deep. And then he'll, he'll play the moon's a harsh mistress just some amazing stuff so that's what it was about you know um and then i just evolved it into a kind of a song you know well it's 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 uh it's very cool when is it coming out that was I, you know i just don't know how they do this anymore but that was pre-released you know that was available on blue alon and spotify right. and stuff as a get ready there's another gb <laughs> whether you right. want it or not there's another gb solo album coming and i think they are going to do the same thing in a couple of weeks with um tickets to the past and so which is the one with dewey and uh and then they've got a third one targeted that i think they simultaneously release with aurora when the whole album comes out not you know not my call this kind of scheduling thing anymore i leave that up to the people who monitor that stuff much closer than i do but uh, i'm proud of it all i think the album's great i really i really actually listened to it the other day which is rare so it's the 50th anniversary of america as well and will you guys be back on tour? Well, uh, technically, it's now the 52nd. In, oh, in 52nd. Okay. We, well, in COVID, we were in the 50th when it all got ground. We were out doing our 50. It was our 50th year. And then a year and a half off. So we kicked it back in about August of last year. And all of that was stuff that was really booked the previous year. It all got, you know, kicked down the road, postponed. So we're out all the time. I think we're working pretty solid through September, and then we're going to uh, take the rest of the year off, maybe. Do you have a, I read you might have a box set coming out. Is there something special that's coming out here this year? Um, there is a new box of the Hollywood, in America or me? You mean America? I think, I think America. There's a Hollywood Bowl project, which is yeah. just fantastic. We did, uh, this is a show we did many years ago in the 70s with Dan Peek, with the original three members, with George Martin conducting the L.A. Philharmonic. We had the tapes for years, and it was really just a technical issue. There was so much noise and things that were just uh, spoilt an, un uh, an otherwise very wonderful experience. And uh, now with technology and noise reduction and things, we and the genius of Jeff Larson, who went through every track of everything and just cleaned it up and stuff, and it's just a gift because we've been sitting around for years, so that's coming out at some point. And that's a so, big with a book. And yeah, big box book. 
the, the whole thing. And everyone needs to go get a copy of that. But first, they need to go get a copy of Aurora and yeah. check out your solo, um, your solo music. And um, before we go, I just wanted to ask you about your photography. What are some of your sa sub, uh, favorite subject matters that you like to shoot? My photography evolved over decades, and it started actually at the birth of the Internet. Not that I didn't take pictures like everybody else with a little camera, but birth of the Internet, I realized I could take a picture, a digital picture, out of my hotel window and email it to my friends and family. And the, one of the main questions you ever hear is, well, where are you today? Because they just know you're on the move. So I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. I'll take a picture out of my window. This is what I'm looking at today. And I did that every day that I was on the road for about 20 years. And it was just one picture. And it was so as usual with these things, I'm not saying I didn't get better as a photographer, but the story ends up being about me more than the pictures. It's like, look at all the places I've been. And so as I got more educated and started to really enjoy it, I started to carry the camera around. So it wasn't just a picture out of the dumpsters out of my hotel window or something. I made rules where... I couldn't change rooms. If the Eiffel Tower was out the other side of the hotel, I couldn't change room to get a better picture. It had to be just where I'm, you know, where I'm looking at today. And uh, one thing, I suppose, with social media and stuff, and it started to get traction. And so now it's been it's a thing. I've got a lovely book uh, being designed now by a Japanese company. And I've got an exhibit in Kyoto later in the year. And so it's a lovely kind of parallel universe for me that's uh, that is that i really enjoy that sounds like a beautiful book and maybe a song along with it room with it, room with a view or something like yeah. that <laughs> well do these blue alon projects they always want photos they say can you pick a photo for each song and stuff so there's usually some kind of a if you want to for extra material if you don't have enough cherry crap you know so they try to integrate the photography and stuff I've been carrying around a Polaroid recently because one of the promotional things is first, I don't know, 50 or 100 people get a Polaroid, a signed Polaroid from my travels. So I've been carrying around another camera. Currently. Well, Jerry, it's been great talking with you about Aurora and your life. And you've had an amazing career, still having an amazing career. I mean, that only most people could dream, dream of. And so we wish you the best of luck. And if you're ever in Memphis, come see us. We have a studio oh, well, in downtown. I love Memphis. I have some very dear friends. Uh, shout out to Kevin Kane. Uh, shout out to Lee Shockey. A lot of my Memphis friends from, from decades. And, I know those uh, guys. <laughs> do you know them? Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, well, they're dear friends of mine. And I had the, the honor of sitting down with w William Eggleston a year or two ago, who lives in Memphis. And uh, he's, you know, my idol as far as photography. So it's a, it's a city dear to my heart. Singer, songwriter, and multi-instrumentalist, Jerry Beckley, everyone. It was a true pleasure to have him join us this hour on Insights. Follow up by sharing today's show with your friends. In the meantime, we encourage you to visit jerrybeckley.com to get your pre-order in for Aurora, Beckley's upcoming LP for Blue Elon Records, set for release on June 17th. Beckley's dedication to music and resilience for touring over the decades is next level, and we have nothing but respect for him. Cheers, Jerry. From all of us at Diddy TV, thanks again for tuning in today, and we hope to see you again soon, right here on Insights. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 